following message is from North Place Church. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com. I'm going to look tonight to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm going to start there. I'm going to end there. I know there'll be a lot of stuff in between, but Ecclesiastes is considered part of the wisdom literature. It's in there with the Psalms and the Proverbs and a lot of wisdom. And this could be a pure nugget of wisdom that is being dropped on us here by Solomon. Listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.18. And we're going to come back later and read this verse in its entire context. Solomon says, It is good to grasp one and not let go of the other. So you have this image of holding on to two things at the same time. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. We're part of a world that idolizes extremes. It seems like the more radical an idea or belief, the more excessive the activity, the more eccentric the person, whether they be a movie star, a sports star, a political activist, whatever they are, it seems the more eccentric they are, the more attention they seem to attract. From the shock jock radio host to eccentric movie stars, political personalities, or professional athletes, we tend to ignore their lack of substance as long as our sensational itch is scratched. Part of the problem is that people are bored with the status quo. There's something inside of them that is crying out for more than a sad, mediocre existence. There's a voice on the inside of them that says there has to be more to this life than an eight-to-five job and the humdrum of routine. This dissatisfaction with normal has sent our souls on a search for something that is exciting, something that gets our heart pumping, something that gets our adrenaline going. We used to be a culture that was satisfied with football or baseball and basketball, but somewhere along the way that got boring. And we pushed hobbies to an extreme and called them the X Games, which are basically an Olympics for extreme sports. Video uh, of thrill seekers flying off of cliffs with bat wing flying suits or illegally base jumping off of the world's tallest buildings. Those videos go viral on the internet every day. And whether it's the adrenaline junkies doing the jumping or the adrenaline junkies watching the video, we are drawn to this kind of thing because there's an internal craving in our hearts for something more. Don't get me wrong. This message tonight is not a message for or against extreme sports, thrill-seeking, or the search for that elusive adrenaline rush. There's a part of me that is bent that way to look for some adrenaline rush. This is simply an assessment of our culture's love of the extreme. After 25 years of serving in the local church, I would say that church culture is as bad or worse in its love of the extreme. I have watched what seemed to be like steady, well-grounded people get caught up in some new fad that sweeps through the church. And before long, they are so certain that this new thing is the only thing that they celebrate the new fad more than they celebrate Jesus. And they will often look with condemnation on those who don't embrace this new fad as passionately as they do. 
Those of you that have been around for a while, you've already started filling in the blanks of what those fads have been in your lifetime or what those new things have been in your church experience. And you can probably start listing the names of people who fit the description that I just gave. I could give you the list of names of people I've known personally, some of whom were ministry leaders who were swept up in a fad, people who even became self-righteous in their newfound zeal, people who became critical of other Christians that didn't share the same zeal for this new thing, people who after the fad wore off and the church split or life returned to normal, these people walked away from their faith completely disenfranchised. Don't get me wrong. God is always moved by His Spirit throughout human history in ebbs and flows. It seems like there are moments when the Spirit moves that there are these tides that rise and then they crescendo and subside. Genuine revivals break out among us that often emphasize certain truths that the people of that time have neglected. If you study church history from a large, high view over several hundred years, you'll see what I'm talking about. When we get loose in our morals, when we start living lives of compromise and compromise in our moral standards and our commitment to the Lord becomes the norm, you will see in that season God will raise up a revival, a move of the Spirit that emphasizes repentance, holiness, and righteous living. That revival will emerge. And then when you're in this season of life and history in the church where the church puts God in a box and says that God can only move within these parameters and this certain way is the only way to expect God to move, a revival will emerge in that season that emphasizes the miraculous and the supernatural power of God will break out and God will move in a way that he has never moved before simply to blow our finite minds. Or when we've become legalistic, and self-righteous, and we remove the joy of serving Jesus because we are so focused on all the rules, a genuine revival of grace breaks out to pull us back away from our legalism. The danger lies in the extreme. When someone takes one of these biblical truths and instead of seeing them as one of the important many doctrines of the Bible, one doctrine that is to be balanced with all of the others, when they take that one thing and make it the main thing, that's when problems start. Every splinter off of Orthodox Christianity that has ever become a cult often started out with a genuine emphasis on a real truth. They saw a truth that was being neglected in the broader church and they emphasized that one truth and drove that truth to an extreme. And they made that one thing the only thing until they built a, a whole religion around that thing. Doctrinal error often begins with truth taken to an extreme. There's a faith movement that has taken the teaching of faith to an extreme. There's a prosperity movement that has taken that to an extreme. There is a holiness movement that has taken that to an extreme. There is a grace movement that has taken that to an extreme. So the question is, is faith taught in the Bible? Yes. Does the scripture teach that God desires to bless and prosper those who walk in obedience to him? Yes. Does God demand righteousness and holiness from those who profess the name of Jesus? Yes. 
Is there a grace taught in the scripture that is so mind-blowing that it offends rational minds? Yes. But the Christian faith is not simply one of these concepts. It is all of these concepts. And while some seem directly opposed in nature, they are perfectly balanced in the nature of God in the scripture and perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Over the last few weeks, we've been in a conversation where we've committed to talk about the things that make North Place Church and its culture unique. We've talked about our commitment to generosity, and last week we talked about our commitment to live lives of of courageous faith. Today, we want to talk about our commitment to be a church culture that embraces biblical balance To be a biblical balanced church in a world of extremes. To be a biblically balanced church in a culture where the broader church culture often gets caught up in chasing new fads. Now listen to me. Our commitment to biblical balance probably means that we won't be in the middle of every new craze that comes down the pipe. It means that we probably won't be the flashiest church in town. It means that we may not be the most attention-grabbing place. But on the other hand, it also means that we choose not to get stuck in the ruts of tradition. We refuse to do things the way they've always been done simply because that's the way they've always been done. We're committed to consistency and integrity and steadfastness. We're committed to balance When others are living in the aftermath at the latest fad that is burned out, we'll still be here, steady. And when others stay stuck in the rut of tradition and die because they refuse to change, we'll still be moving forward. That's balance. It's being geared to the times, but anchored to the rock. In the last 25 years of ministry, in the last 10 years of pastoring this church, I've noticed something. When people chase extremes, they often get in with a group of people who are chasing those extremes. And there's this deep sense of camaraderie, and it's an us and them mentality. The people that are chasing whatever new fad or extreme has popped up, there's this deep intimacy with those that are involved in chasing that same fad, and they look at this group over here that doesn't embrace that fad almost as an enemy, and all of these people are in the body of Christ, and this people over here critical of that extreme or that fad, it's their little group, and they're embracing against that fad, and they have camaraderie and and friends and and intimacy here. It's an either or, and, and they're facing off against each other but there is a, at least in those extremes, there is some degree of relationship. Being balanced often means being lonely. It leaves you on an island in the middle. You chase that extreme, everybody's caught up in the excitement of that. You chase that extreme, everybody's caught up in the excitement of that. But when you choose to be balanced, it often leaves you on an island because you don't choose a side. And when you don't choose a side, both groups reject you. That's when you have to know as a person, or you have to know as a church, that where you're standing on that island in the balance between those two extremes is anchored in a biblical position. I grew up near the massive Mississippi River, and there's nothing that that awes me more than the power in that one-mile-wide river. I've come the closest to death. 
I mean, I literally thought it was the day it was over on that river because of the power of the water in that river. During seasons of flooding, I've watched the devastation that has been caused by the rising floodwaters of the Mississippi River. I've actually been on the river in some of the worst flooding that the Mississippi has seen in recent years. And this is what I've learned growing up and being around the largest river here in our country. This is what I know. The river is the deepest and the safest in the middle. If you get in the shallow floodwaters when the river occasionally overflows its bank, Those floodwaters are faster and they're temporarily more exciting than being in the middle. They are also more destructive. And eventually they will recede and leave you stranded on dry ground, disillusioned at what just happened if you survive. But when you choose to navigate the main channel of the river, you enjoy a steady pace. And when floodwaters rise the middle, you rise with the floodwaters. But when those floodwaters recede, you recede, you safely return to the normal deep center of the river channel. For a lot of people in the church, the concept of balance is a dirty word because they are so geared to the extreme that the idea of balance seems to them to be compromise. And that's not what balance is at North Place. For us, balance is not the safe middle road. It is the passionate pursuit of God within the parameters, the channel of clear biblical discernment. We desire to be a place of both feeling and substance. A place where you can feel the presence of God. A place where the emotions are stirred. Where you weep and, 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 and you laugh and, and, and you're convicted. Where you literally feel the presence of God. There is a, we, we, we don't shy away from the fact that we long to be a place of feeling. Where our emotions are stirred. But at the same time, we want to be a place of substance. Where you can sit in stunned silence at the weightiness of your sin and the grace of God. Too many places overemphasize feeling to the point that that's all it is. It's all emotion and no substance. And there are some places that so emphasize substance that any emotional uh, show or anything that would be expressive or responsive to God in emotion is looked at as immature. We want to be a place that is spirit-empowered and intellectually engaged. Too many places focus just on the spirit and the neglect of the intellect. And too often places focus on growing the intellect and look with disdain on those who celebrate freedom in the spirit. We believe it is possible to be a spirit-empowered church that you don't have to check your brain at the back door every time you walk in. There can be an environment of freedom in the spirit passionate worship, spirit empowerment, where the Holy Spirit has reigned to move in the lives of people, and we have the freedom to respond in our emotional makeup and worship God in that way with passion, and at the same time be very deep people of substance and be very intellectually engaged in the Word of God. We desire to be a place that is experiential, but not spooky. A place that balances the Word and the Spirit Some churches are so focused on the Word, they neglect the work of the Spirit. And some churches so emphasize the Spirit, they neglect the the priority of the Word. But this is what we know. If you focus on the Word only, you dry up. If you focus on the Spirit only, you blow up. If you focus on the Word and Spirit, you grow up. 
That's balance. We're committed to being a place that balances law and grace. And I really believe that's what Solomon was trying to get to in Ecclesiastes 7 when we read verse 18 a moment ago. Let's read it in a broader context. In verse 15, it says, Solomon says, In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Solomon is not saying that we should be a little wicked and a little righteous. It's not even possible to be a little wicked and a little righteous. That's not what he's saying. In his context, Solomon is warning against the extremes of religious legalism with the only intent is to pursue righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. On the other hand, he is warning against a permissive grace that does not pay any attention to the righteous standards of the law, but because of a permissive grace, they go on and live wicked lies to an extreme. He is saying you need to be able to grab a hold of one without letting go of the other. You need to understand the righteous element of God's nature, and you need to understand the gracious element of God's nature all at the same time. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 6. In the first few chapters of Romans, Paul has just announced this amazing new covenant of grace that flies in the face of the religious legalism of the people of Paul's day. They were attaching all of these rules of what it meant to become a follower of Jesus besides simply believing in Jesus. And Paul was announcing to them that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and came and established the covenant of grace. And yet while he's teaching grace... There are some listening to him teaching grace who misunderstand him, who think that he's saying, okay, law's been fulfilled, Jesus established grace, and he said, so wherever the sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So people are hearing this thinking, wow, then it must mean this new message of grace is a license for me to go on and live however I want to live. That's an extreme. But when Paul is speaking, he is balancing the nature of God that calls for righteousness under the law. And the nature of God that demands this irrational grace that be extended towards sin. Paul is balancing those two. Matter of fact, when he is misunderstood by people to think that grace is a license to sin, Paul says this in Romans 6, 5. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Solomon and Paul both balance the aspects of God's nature that seem opposed to one another. They're opposite. Law and grace. It can seem like when you're reading the Bible and you read one scripture, God's a gracious Savior. And then you flip over a few pages and you read another scripture and it seems like he's this holy judge waiting to condemn the world. And the reality is he is both a gracious Savior and a righteous judge. Even though they seem opposite, they are both true. Randy Alcorn says this, if we minimize grace, the world sees no hope for salvation. If we minimize truth, the world sees no need for salvation. The same God who said in Hebrews 12, without holiness, no man will see God. That same God also said in 2 Peter 3 that he was willing that no one would perish, but everyone would come to repentance. 
So on one aspect of his nature, without holiness, no man will please God. On the other aspect of his nature, his gracious heart is willing that no man would perish and spend eternity without him. When you read Job, the book of Job in the Old Testament, it seems like Job understood the dilemma that you and I have when we try to wrestle with these opposite natures of God. I mean, it's one nature. But in our finite minds, it seems like these are two polar opposite things that can never be completely reconciled. Job was dealing with that. Matter of fact, Job recognized he was a sinful individual and he said, you know, I wish God was a judge. At least I could go before him if he was a human judge and I could plead my case. But not this God. He's not, I can't approach him that way and plead my case. And he says this, if I just had somebody, if I had somebody that understood me and somebody that understood God, Somebody that understood the grace of God and the law of God at the same time. And at the same time had the capacity as they understood grace and law from God's perspective. They understood the frailty of my situation. And they could represent God's case to me. And they could represent my case to God. Job says, I just wish I had somebody like that. Listen to me. He says it in Job 9.32. He said, he, God, is not a man like me that I might answer him. That we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand on us both. Someone to remove God's rod from me so that this terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. The arbitrator, the King James calls, that uses the word a day's man. That means a, a go-between, a liaison that can somehow reach out and grab the holiness of God and under, reach out and grab the grace of God and unite those two concepts together and at one time reach out and grab this holy God and a sinful man and unite those two together. Job was looking for that person. He was longing for someone who understood those aspects of God nature. Remember, just a moment ago, I said that Jesus embodied the perfect balance of what seems to be the opposing natures of God. Jesus was Job's answer to prayer. Jesus is the perfect picture of where God's judgment and grace come together. There's this beautiful psalm, and you can read it in any translation, but it's beautiful to me in the New King James. And this is what it says in Psalm 85 and 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. The psalmist is prophesying. All through the psalms, there are what we call messianic prophecies, where hundreds of years before Jesus, there are these psalms that were written that describe exactly what went on in Jesus' life. This is one of the more obscure messianic prophecies. It is actually a picture of what happened at the cross the day Jesus was crucified, where you have mercy and truth meeting together. You have the nature of God that is reaching out that none should perish, but then you have the truth of God that demands that Without holiness, no man will see God. How do you reconcile those two? One arm of the cross reached towards the mercy of God. One arm of the cross reached towards the truth of God. And Jesus on the cross reconciled. It is a picture both of God's judgment of sin and his gracious love for you. His gracious love for humanity. It was in that moment that mercy and truth met together. It was in this moment that righteousness and peace kissed each other at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to how John describes Jesus. 
In John 1.14, the Word became flesh, talking about Jesus, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. But how did He come from the Father? Full of grace and truth. He came embodying in one person the nature of God that is full of truth and full of grace all at the same time. And then three verses later, John writes, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses represented the law. And some would tell you that Jesus came to represent just grace. Moses represented the law, but Jesus came to represent grace and truth. He is the embodiment of both aspects of the nature of God. Jesus is the balance. He is the word and spirit wrapped up in one person. He is law and grace wrapped up in one person. The extreme nature of God is reconciled in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean for us? It means if we keep our eye on Jesus as a person in our own life, or if we will stay focused on Jesus as a church, it will keep us in the middle of the river. It will keep us balanced in a world of extremes. And being balanced in a world of extremes allows our church culture to be a place that can find unity in the middle of our diversity. A biblical balance around Jesus will practically show itself when we're willing to give deference over our preference. And let me explain what that means. When Jesus becomes the center of attention and he really is present among us, our wants and our desires and our styles become less important to us than the presence of Jesus. For those of you that didn't grow up in church and don't realize how important this message is, you haven't seen churches split over things that shouldn't matter. You haven't seen people who are supposed to be solid believers get tangled up over an irrelevant idea and that irrelevant concept becomes the main thing and all of a sudden you've got families that have done life together their entire life at odds over something that should not even matter because Jesus wasn't the center of attention. That thing, whatever it was, became the center of attention and it started a holy war in some little church somewhere or some big church somewhere and people's preferences outruled their deference for one another. But when there is a balanced culture and we stay in the middle of the river and Jesus stays the center of attention because Jesus is the center, we will defer to others who may be weaker or less mature or younger or whatever because Jesus is the center. He is more important. One of the things, it's not a a battle here for us, But it is a very common battle in most churches going through transition where you've had an older generation that has been in the church for a long time and and they're either choosing to go on doing it the way they've always done it and all their younger children and grandchildren go somewhere else and they just go on and die in irrelevance or they face the awkwardness of change and try to do things that attract their children or their grandchildren to stay in that church and some choose to die and be irrelevant rather than change. This, this, is the, um, this is a quote because a lot of the wars that start in church are over music and styles and preferences. And this is, this is a war that was in, going on in the church. A prominent American pastor 
made this comment about music. And this is what he said. There are several reasons for opposing it. He's talking about a certain style of music. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style because there are so many new songs you can't learn them all. It also puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than on godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. Now, I could take you to churches where it would have sounded like that quote was made last Sunday. But it was actually made in 1723. It was a critique of Isaac Watts. Because they had started putting songs in a hymn book. And they were singing these songs that were now known as hymns. Watts produced the first hymn book in the English language and wrote the great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And that idea of hymns in a hymn book was such a new thing, this pastor in 1723 made those statements as a critique of hymns and a critique of Isaac Watts. Every generation has their issues. Here's a humorous example. This is so... um, it's, it's, it's funny because as, as frivolous as what I'm about to read is, I've been in the middle of this argument, okay? Refereeing it. Not recently, not here, but I've been in the middle of it, okay? An old farmer went to the city one weekend and attended a big city church, and he came home, and his wife asked him how it was. Well, said the farmer, it was good. They did something different, however. They, they sang courses instead of hymns. Courses, said his wife. What are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like hymns, only different, said the farmer. Well, what's the difference, asked his wife. The farmer said, well, it's like this. If I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, well, that would be a hymn. If on the other hand, I were to say to you, Martha, 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 oh, Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, cows, cows are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn, the corn, corn, corn. (laughs) Then if I were to repeat the whole thing two or three times, that would be a course. The next weekend, his nephew, a young new Christian from the city, came to visit the farmer and his wife and attended the local small town church. He went home and his mother asked him, how was church? Well, he said, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang hymns instead of regular songs. Hymns, said his mother, what are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like regular songs. They're just different. Well, what's the difference, asked his mother. The young man said, well, if I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be a regular song. If on the other hand, I were to say to you, oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry, inclinest thy ear to the words of my mouth, turn thy whole wondrous ear by and by to the righteous, immitable, glorious truth. For the way of animals who can explain there in the hands is no shadow of sense. Hearkenest they in God's son or his reign unless from the mild tempting corn they are fenced. 
Yea, those cows in glad bovine rebellious delight have broke free their shackles, their warm pins askewed. They then goaded by minions of darkness and night, they all my mild chili wax sweet corn have chewed. So look at the bright shining day by and by where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal may make my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows in the corn. Then... If I were to only do verse 1 and 4 and do a key change on the last verse, that would be a hymn. It's funny, isn't it? But it's split churches. It's divided grandchildren from their grandparents. It's divided moms and dads, and, and this is just one of them frivolously. I mean, you got, you got people who, when the worship is going and, and, and some, some older saint needs to sit down and worship, you often have a, a younger one that would say, why do those old folks sit down? I mean, God's moving, and, and when, when you sit down, it acts like, no, I can tell you, my grandmama can touch God better sitting down than you can standing up. Your posture in worship does not speak to the position of your heart. I know a lot of people that display a lot of frivolous action in worship, but there's no substance because worship is not activity. Worship is attitude. There can be people of deep, deep, reserved substance who show little on the outside but are deep in their walk with God and passionate in their worship and can be much deeper than some of those who are more outwardly expressive. But for those of you who are really deep, be careful what you criticize when someone is very different than you and much more expressive in their worship. Don't look down your nose in condescension at those emotionally wired people as if they are less spiritual than you are because you are more refined. There's a place here for all of us. There's a place in the umbrella of the church for all of us. We're different. God wired us that way. But when we make peripheral things the main thing, then Jesus is no longer the center thing. And when Jesus is no longer the center thing, our preference becomes more important than our difference. It becomes about us and our style and our opinions. John Piper is a seasoned pastor just recently retired of serving the better part of four decades at the same church. And John Piper said this, I was studying over the last few weeks on balance, and I ran across this, and it's a longer quote than I normally share, but Piper, I, I, I get wisdom from Piper on occasion, and I just needed to share this with you. Many errors in the church are not ones of substance, but degree. It is possible for a pastor, is it possible? It, oh, it is possible for a pastor to lead his church poorly while teaching wonderful things. How? By giving those good things disproportionate emphasis in the life of the body. For example, a leader can faithfully articulate the Bible's teaching on mercy ministry or music in worship, but emphasize this teaching so strongly and so often that the community begins to lose a sense of balance regarding that teaching. Soon, faithfulness in the Christian life is defined by the degree of involvement in mercy ministry. After all, Christianity is about being the hands and feet of Christ. Let me pause for a moment. He's saying some of those people that feed the homeless or do those kinds of things feel like that's the only way to serve God. And they often talk negatively about those 
lazy suburban saints that don't do what they do. That's what he's saying. So, so before long, the entire Christian life is defined by involvement in mercy ministry. And there's so much more than defines the Christian life than that one thing. He goes on to say, soon the church is on an island of musical faithfulness, awash in a sea of compromise at every hand. The church can be known as the evangelism church or the biblical counseling church or the kids ministry church or the culturally relevant church. What may have begun as good and needed teaching has now taken on a life of its own. Simply put, has become more important than the Bible makes it. But healthy churches and ministries long for the main things of Scripture to be the main themes sounded. Thus, the gospel, the person of Christ, Christian discipleship, the Great Commission are some of the primary things healthy church is preoccupied with. It's not that secondary issues are unimportant to such ministries. It's just they are secondary. Oh, how rare are churches who speak with a tender heart and have theological backbones of steel, grace and truth. How rare it is and how it ought not be rare. And I don't want it to be rare. Theological truth with biblical backbones of steel and as soft as clover so that children can come and broken people can come to you. I want us to contend. We have been intentional about praying for a, a church that is biblically balanced, not compromise, not in the safe middle road. The Bible teaches moderation. But the, the phrase that moderation in all things, the Bible doesn't teach moderation in all things. That's not a phrase that comes from the Bible. The Bible, te Bible teaches the concept of moderation, self-control, and those kinds of things. But there's one area of life we're not supposed to have moderation in, and that's our pursuit of Jesus. And the pursuit of Jesus, unbridled pursuit of Jesus, is what helps us have balance in every area of our life. Ecclesiastes 7.18, it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. I've always had this mind, uh, in my, this vision in my mind, my heart of trying to live a balanced life. And I've had mo moments where I was really lonely because I had friends chasing after that and I didn't embrace it and I wasn't in. I had friends chase after that and I didn't embrace it and I wasn't in. And I was the fuddy-dud stuck in the middle that wasn't hip or cool or relevant. And in my mind, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to keep Jesus the center. And when that thing's over and that thing flashes out, I'll still be just kind of just trucking on, being steady. And some of those guys aren't even serving God today. I think if we anchor ourselves, I get this image of if you anchor a tightrope in that wall and you anchor a tightrope in that wall over there, those walls are on opposite sides. But there's a tension created in that rope that allows you to stand and balance. The tension is not a bad thing if it's anchored in Jesus. It allows us something to stand on. Hang on to this grace without letting go of that law. Hang on to the freedom of the Spirit without letting go of the structure spoken of in the Word. Be experiential, don't be spooky. It's all of those things. It's who we are as a church. It's who we want to be. The people of balance. 
I think it would be fitting for us tonight before we leave to turn our attentions to Jesus. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place. I just want you, maybe there's some area of your life personally that has gotten imbalanced. Or maybe at some previous situation in church or even maybe here right now, there's a preference that you have that's not being met and that preference is inhibiting your inability to have deference towards others is inhibiting you. And, And what I'm challenging you to do is just Make it all about Jesus. Turn your eyes on Him tonight. Before we do anything else, before we pray, before we close, could we just commit here in the fourth week of this journey about our culture together to say, as the previous generations before us have said, this thing is all about Jesus. It's not about personalities. It's not about denominations. It's not about buildings, budgets, or bodies who walk through the door. It's about Jesus. This week, I had a conversation with my father-in-law. He's approaching 90 and his health, he's, you'll never meet a nicer man. When he was a kid, he was baptized and let's say a kid, 19 or 20, a young adult. He, um, had a conversation with some people and just got him thinking. He said they almost talked him out of his relationship with God, not convinced him. They talked him. He, hadn't, he didn't do the things that they did, these extremes. And So at 90 years old, he wanted to bring a saddle to Haley, his old professional rodeo saddle. He wanted to, it's a family heirloom, and he brought it down this week. But his real reason is he wanted to talk to me. He's not flashy. He's not the most educated man. He's simple and he's steady, and some people were trying to, convert him at the end of his life as if he wasn't already converted and it made him second guess his relationship with God and I said Leonard you may not be the most studied person but I've watched the fruit of your life I've seen you make Jesus the center of attention and you may not know Greek you may not have studied Hebrew it may have to be simple for you But there are people that have never read a lick, never written a word. They're illiterate people that have put their faith in Jesus and made it to heaven. And you can both read and write. The ultimate thing is not what you do with this doctrine. It's not what you do with that doctrine. The ultimate thing is what you believe about Jesus. Whether it's a 90-year-old man in the latter years of his life just needing to come back because somebody tried to talk him out of it. Or whether it's you and I and a church family that could be swept away with this or swept away with that. Let's just as a church collectively to say, God, we don't want that to happen to us, to our leaders. We want it to be about Jesus. Come on, sing a song that you know, but make it a profession, a commitment, a surrender as a church family. Jesus be the center of it all. Jesus be the center of it all From beginning to the end It will always be It's always been you, Jesus Jesus
Jesus be the center. Jesus be the center of it all. Jesus be the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always be you, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus be the center of the church. Jesus be the center of this church. Jesus be the center of your church. And every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess you, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, be the center of my life. Jesus, be the center of my life. Jesus, be the center of my life. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Prayer team, would you help Jesus. us tonight and come and prepare to service? This is what I know every time Jesus. in Scripture when Jesus is the center of attention, miracles happen, mountains move, lives are changed. And I believe in word and in worship tonight. We've done our best to make Jesus the center of attention. If you have a need, you came in with that dilemma that I mentioned a moment ago and you need God to touch you in some way tonight. When Jesus is lifted up, when he is the center of attention, his virtue, like the woman with the issue of blood, she touched him and his virtue touched her. I believe he wants to touch you tonight. I'm going to speak... Um, a word of blessing over you right out of the Old Testament. And if you have a need tonight you want one of us to pray with you about, we'd be happy to do that before you leave the building. You're welcome to come even while I pray, but these altars will remain open. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Will you turn your countenance their direction? And Father, will you give them peace? In Jesus' name, amen and amen. These altars are open tonight. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to duplicate or to share this message. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com.